Welcome to the Jewelers Podcast, the podcast that talks to jewelers, retailers, and industry supporters about their experiences and insights into the jewelry industry. The Jewelers Podcast is part of the Jewelry Industry Network. Whether you're a jeweler, retailer, supplier, valuer, gemologist, teacher, or student, the Jewelry Industry Network is here to help you build your business in the jewelry industry. Join us today with a free membership at www.jewelryindustrynetwork.com. We can't wait to work with you. Welcome, everybody, to the next episode of the Jewelers Podcast. We are very excited today because we're joined by a legend in the industry, uh, Lester Brand from Lester Brand Jewelry. Welcome, Lester. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. It's so great to have you on with us today on, on Zoom. Uh, let's tell the audience, where do we find you today, Lester? So I'm sitting in my home office in Sydney. Yeah, enjoying the lockdown, no doubt. Yes, homeschooling is a whole new skill set that you've developed. <laughs> I'm running a business and having a, a seven and an eight-year-old. <laughs> I think any age is hard at this, at this stage. So, <laughs> yeah, well, well done. Well done. It must be very challenging. Tell us a little bit about Lester Brand and how you started the company. Um, well, we must probably really need to have a one-minute history lesson, um, which will maybe answer a whole lot of questions. So my grandfather in 1912 immigrated from Latvia to South Africa, and he was a watchmaker, and he started our family business back then. And needless to say, many years later, my father joined him, and their business was primarily focused on retail and watchmaking and the watchmaking watchmaking workshop. And then in when I finished school, I had a couple of years in the army, and then I did a degree, a university degree at Stellenbosch University, where I studied design and qualified as a master goldsmith at the same time. And when I completed that, joined the family business. Oh, that's really impressive. I've only ever heard really good things about the South African uh, jewellery education as well. So, so I think becoming the master goldsmith plus doing the design background, that obviously puts you in really good stead and it makes it pretty clear why you're in the position you're in now, I think. Uh, I think I think there was probably three primary influences that kind of took place around that. Firstly, there is, well, we're talking now 30 plus years ago, there was a very, very strong, strong jewelry industry in South Africa, and it was supported by the primary industry. And to give an example of that, at the university where I studied, there was a gemology laboratory, which had been sponsored and financed by the Oppenheimer family. So the De Beers, the owners, the then owners of De Beers, basically put together all of the equipment, all of the facilities and state of the art to create a gemology laboratory. And at the time, whilst doing my university degree, I did the British FGA simultaneously because all those facilities were there and you know, not to take advantage of them would have been, would have been a crime. So um, yeah, I was just a sponge to soak up everything that I could. But then the real training came when I was, you know, we never discussed it or labeled it, but I was certainly apprenticed to my father. <laughs> and um, that's a story over a very long, very long beer. But um, needless to say, I, my father really was an engineer. He wasn't a watchmaker. And my first day on the bench working in, my, in our family business ended with 
him and I having a huge argument because whilst I'd finished all the work, he quality controlled everything under a microscope. Wow, day and, one. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was crushing, let me tell you, to say the least. But um, I went home that night very, very upset and very frustrated because he basically rejected every single thing I did. And you know, I thought I was pretty good on the bench. And anyhow, the next day I came back and we had a Mexican standoff for the next 10 years. And the Mexican <laughs> standoff was that um, he could be as tough as he liked on quality control. And I could be as tough as I liked on pricing. And neither of us would argue. So if he accepted something, that was fine. If he didn't, I would, you know, say, well, either I can do better or I can't, but don't pay if, you're not, if it's not good enough. But if you like it, pay the price and smile. That's good. That's a good trade-off to have something that you both control. That well, it, yeah, it was an honest, it was a very honest trade-off. I mean, he was incredibly tough, you know, because mm. he really did quality control everything with a microscope and not just on day one, every single day. Wow. Um, and as much as we were, you know, partners in our manufacturing business, um, I still worked for the retail arm of the business. And um, I think I can say with a great deal of pride today, that when you look at the product that we manufacture today, all those years later, that ethic, that culture of seeking perfection, of you know, nothing can be done unless it's done to the very best of your ability. So whenever we're making something, it's always about how do we make this thing as beautiful as possible and as nice as possible and to the best possible standard. Um, and then we worry about the money after. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's yeah, really yeah. nice the, the bar was set very early by your father and you just continued it on and i imagine you refer back to that at times and yeah sometimes with tears but mostly <laughs> mostly with with joy and pride yeah and sadly sadly he's passed on but um you know he was a monumental influence in the focus that's taken our business for sure Mm. Was there any reason why you didn't get into watches versus jewellery? Oh, there's a good, very good reason for that. You know, so when I was a little kid at school and I used to go into the family shop on a weekend or, you know, it was kind of babysitting. It was like, you know, here's a clock, take it apart. You know, go and entertain yourself. And let me tell you, I took a lot of clocks apart. Never put one back together again. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Yeah. You chose the forte that you... <laughs> Yeah, look, the, rea the reality is even jewellery is too small. You know, I mean, clocks, are, clocks and watches are tiny. Jewellery is a little bit bigger. I do carpentry for pleasure. You know, I need to see. I need to build really a table. I, I need to see what I'm doing. You know, it's, all, <laughs> it's too small. It's, it's challenging. <laughs> oh, fantastic. All right. So, so I want to know a bit more about your design inspiration. So, like, where does that come from? How do you come up with your designs? Are you doing all the designing on your own? How does that work? It's a very, it's like, that's how much is a red dress kind of question. <laughs> so at, at the purest level, um, if I'm wanting to design something because I want to design it, the inspiration can really come from, from anywhere. You know, as a lot of people would tell you, you know, they might see something architecturally or they might see a texture or you find a gemstone or something and you're trying to, you know, you incorporate all of these things that you get stimulated by from outside of the industry and you think about how you can convert them into a piece of jewelry. So I think the, the short answer to that is most probably 
if I have a passion that's really around diamonds and colored stones, and a lot of that goes back to my kind of formal education. And from there, it's like, you know, how do we just make something that's really nice and comfortable and beautiful, aesthetically pleasing? Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say, it's, you know, oh, I'll open up a book of, you know, impressionist paintings. And I think a lot of that's just, to be honest, you know, whilst impressionists are an incredible movement and, you know, there's a great um, story behind all of those sorts of movements in place and time. But I don't think that's those sorts of things are really an inspiration for me. Um, I'm certainly very sensitive to the things that are happening around me, that are happening in the industry. I take a lot of feedback from our clients because at some point in time, you've got to be commercial as well because you know, you've got to put food on the table. So I will listen to our customers and listen to what they, what they need and what they're looking for and then come up with some designs. And I suppose one of the greatest compliments I've ever had was from an existing customer who said to me, please make, I want you to make this. And he gave me his chicken scratch drawing and he said, now I want you to lestify it. <laughs> so, you know, this is, this is a customer who had a long relationship with, he understands what, what it is that we do mm. to make our jewelry special. And he mm. said, I've got an idea now, put your stuff on it, make mm. your stuff. Mm. Make Brand your it for me. <laughs> well, look, just put your magic on it. And, you know, for me, that's a huge, huge compliment because I've always kind of felt that if somebody tries on our piece of jewelry or looks at it and they have an emotional reaction to what we do, which is when someone says, wow, you know, that's a gut instinct. And that's the validation for that. I need to understand what it is about all of the attention to detail or that there's a comfort fit or the weight of the article is good. It's just, they have the visceral reaction and that validates that says you've, you've touched them. And, you know, that's kind of why we do it. Like you said about your designs being uh, like commercially viable. And that's one thing that really stood out to me. Like you sent through the, uh, the special list heading into Christmas and I'm flicking through those new designs of yours there. And there's so many really beautiful designs, but the commercial viability is so clear. Like, like yeah, you've got, might be an emerald cut stone or an oval cut stone, but there's something different about it. It's got an interesting basket. It's got an interesting shoulder stone pattern it's not just a plain round stone halo like you're breaking it up with fancy cut you know shapes and diamonds and uh i think that's really clever like i don't see too many people doing that in the mass production or or wholesale realm that tends to be more mm -hmm. the custom made uh, particularly the mix of of metals as well using color metals as accents in the baskets or in the claws and that's one thing that really stood out to me when i was looking at your designs like they're, they're really quite interesting for something that is going wholesale across the country, but still remaining retail viable. So uh, I suppose we, you know, we're looking to try and position ourselves certainly at the middle to high end of the local market. Um, you know, it's very easy to get carried away and you can make some beautiful pieces, but they don't sell. And from time to time, we might, we might make one or two pieces because we can and mm -hmm. because we do it for ourselves. And, you know, they might sit on the, on a shelf for a very long time, but we've, we've made them for a different kind of reason, as opposed to making something which is challenging yet saleable, where people respond to it would say, wow, like I haven't seen something like that before, or it is interesting. You know, yes, we have a collection of thousands and thousands and thousands of designs. And if somebody came to me and said, oh, Lester, I want you to make me a six claw solitaire, with the grace of pleasure, we've got, you know, 50 different versions of it. 
And I'll tell you two things. When we make it, it will be perfect. And also it will not be inexpensive because it's a, you know, to make a six claw solitaire today is a commodity business. It's like selling wedding bands, very, very competitive and uh, all sorts of qualities. So we make those things because we do have clients who buy them, but it's not really what we're renowned for. What we're renowned for is perhaps pushing the limit a little bit in our market, in Australia, New Zealand, and uh, some of the other countries where we work to, you know, push that limit. Mm, yeah, we were very, I think, very lucky to be able to see some of these new releases, maybe before some of your customers do, I'm not sure, but they are really gorgeous. And I think too, they're, even though they might be pushing the boundaries a bit, they are very classic. You wouldn't look through them and go, oh, well, that's going to date next year, or you know, that's not really a style that most people would like. I would see the majority of these as being very, uh, I suppose, transferable to different styles, different tastes. They're very classic and and um, and yet have that unique touch, which I think is very clever. I think I think the unique touch comes in the attention to detail. You know, at every at every little aspect of whatever it is that we're designing, there is a there is an attention to detail which makes the thing fit. It makes it work. It's balanced. The proportion is right. Uh, you know, mm. it's the aesthetic result at the end puts a smile on someone's face. Mm. Lester, what makes you passionate about the jewellery industry? You've had obviously a very long history in it. You grew up in it. You love the uh, emotion that your pieces bring to your customer and to your, you know, to your retailers as well. But what is that what makes you passionate about it? Is there more to it for you? Um, I think for me, it's really, there are two things really. The one is I do enjoy the creative process. So taking something from nothing from a sketch on a piece of paper or even the fine, you know, a, a rough gemstone, taking something from nothing and building something for me is a passion. Even with it, even if I'm doing carpentry, you know, if you take a piece of raw timber and you turn it into something and you can stand back at the end and you can look at what you've made, for me, that process is, uh, that creative process is very, very rewarding. And then the icing on the cake is the validation that when you show something, what you've made, and you know, if you make something as simple as baking a cake, and then you, someone tries the cake and say, oh, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> it's a kind of, it's a form of love. It's a validation. It says, thank you. I appreciate what you've done. And so when I get that sort of feedback from a client um, to say, thank you, just even just a thank you or a, a wow or a, you know, that's terrific. That goes so far to validating. And I think that a lot of customers in the, in the customer supplier relationship sometimes forget how much more they can get out of their suppliers by saying, thank you. you know, wow. Thank you. <laughs> I, li I like to characterize it like it's a, it's a, it's a master and dog relationship. <laughs> you know, if, if you have a dog and you stroke your and, and clearly the supplier is the dog if you <laughs> if you stroke your dog and you look after him and you feed him he will give you unconditional love his whole life it's true but you know you pull you pull a dog's tail you want to be careful because their teeth at the other end yeah and they, they can bite they turn around yeah. real fast exactly <laughs> exactly so yeah i hope that it's a long-winded answer to your question but um, so yeah, the process, but the validation as well.
Yeah, that's really cool to hear because I speak to a lot of manufacturing jewelers and designers and to hear that you still have that sort of passion because that's exactly how I think the majority of us, of us feel. There's a I lot used of to have it. Right? <laughs> your hair's still there. It hasn't fallen out. You've got to have some, left, some passion left. But that's what I, I get from most of them though, that they you put so much thought into your designs and so much work and effort and we take our work a little bit too personally, I think, at times. So when the, the end consumer, customer, you know, retailer, whoever it is, loves what we're producing, that's what we're all about. Because we're like, yeah, I've put my heart and soul into this. So I'm, I'm glad you can see it and you can enjoy it. Yeah, look, I mean, our industry, you know, it's emotional. Everything we do in our industry is emotive. People buy jewelry for emotional reasons. I mean, for thousands and thousands of years, people have wanted shiny, sparkly things. Mm. Um, and it's just, it's not like buying food. You know, you need yeah, food to sustain yourself. Jewelry, well, it sustains an emotional need. Let's put it I was going to say, it sustains me. It's not a financial investment. You don't do it to, to well, make money. I, I, term, but. Whenever, whenever we do training, uh, and we do a lot of training with, with our customers, especially on engagement ring sales, and this question crops up about investments, my advice is always to say to the salesperson when they address the young couple is to say to the man, this is an, an, an emotional investment that you're making in your wife or exactly. your wife-to-be. And the reason is that every time she looks at that ring, you want her to have happy thoughts about you <laughs> because this is, this is where it starts. That's right. I say I often look at mine and I say, well, I shouldn't complain about him today. I should, I should just be happy with him today. Yeah, well, you know, you don't want her, you don't want her looking at the ring and thinking that he was a tight bastard. You know, you <laughs> look at it and say, oh, wow, am, am I lucky? What a lucky girl am I? <laughs> Very good. So, of course, we're talking a lot about design at the moment, and you, we briefly talked a bit there about your upcoming trends for Christmas. How do you keep on top of what the next season's trends are going to be? To be honest, it's not something that I'm really focused on at all about what's on trend or what's coming and kind of getting ahead of that curve. I think the global market today is so niched and everybody has his own kind of little speciality that to try and predict a global trend. I mean, yes, you can follow all of the stuff on Instagram and, you know, you can go down so many different rabbit holes that really I don't, I don't subscribe to that at all really i just pursue what it is that we want to make if there's new technology i'm really much more interested in what new technologies are out there that we can use in our business and then it's about you know listening to our customers developing looking at what we did last year what we did the year before what was successful what wasn't so successful and really how do we build on our successes as opposed to um, finding some magic pull that's you know, coming around the corner. So it's more about staying in your lane and building on your your niche, I suppose, than it is seeing what the, the next wave is going to be. Yeah, I would I would say so. So, Lester, you're located in Sydney at the moment and you had manufacturing here in Australia for a time and you've moved some of that or the majority of that offshore. What what have you done to change your manufacturing process? So when, when I first started, in Australia anyway, you know, I had my, my workshop was me in my garage at home for, uh, for some time before I could get on my feet properly. And then we had a proper factory in Sydney for a couple of years, but very, very soon, 
you know, I recognized that firstly, to build the kind of business I wanted to build, we didn't have the depth of skill in Australia. And to find those skills craftsmen, uh, besides the fact that there weren't enough of them, there's a, you have to kind of find a balance between the skill being cost-effective and being competitive. And as a result, in the early 90s, we started our first joint venture in China. And now this was really long before people knew where China was on the map. And back <laughs> in those days, to say that we were manufacturing in China, you would have to whisper it. It's not something that you would stand loud and proud, but we were incredibly fortunate. We had partners there at the time who um, gave us everything that we needed. And it was, you know, I gave them the, a lot of help on the technology side. They gave me resources and we could write a procedure as long as we liked and they would follow every single little step. And as a result, back in those early days, you know, we were producing a level of quality and sophistication which hadn't been seen in this country before because we were able to get ahead by A, being in China back in those days. So our cost base was very, very low. But the ethic that we were able to instill in the labor force in terms of procedure and attention to detail was phenomenal. And that really helped build the backbone of our business. But more recently, we've diversified. We have an operation in Thailand today. We needed all of the lapidary skills uh, and all of the connections that you can get out of Bangkok today with regards to color. And so today, prim primarily our business is out of Thailand um, for colored stones, for manufacturing. And then we've also developed a very sophisticated a diamond portal or search engine for certified stones, which is on our website to be able to access today over 250,000 certified stones with incredible high resolution graphics with a level of transparency on information that, you know, it's a, it's a whole big discussion, but, you know, GIA is very far behind what is available in terms of detailed technology today. And we've built a very, very good web application for this in conjunction with our supplier so that's a whole new part of our business this whole loose diamond business which, yeah wow if you'd asked me five years ago lester would you be selling loose certified stones i would have said never in a million years <laughs> but it's amazing what the technology can bring you know? mm, mm, what it can allow you to do yeah yeah absolutely so sorry brett that was a long answer to, to your question <laughs> but yeah you know thailand is more the place for us today yeah i think um COVID is really ramped up some of this, these online portals as well. Uh, I hear a lot of wholesalers making the most of these, these portals because we can't be face-to-face. -face. We can't have our reps, reps coming around to visit the stores and, and see the new products. And it's been difficult to travel, of course, you know, to overseas fairs. So I do, I do wonder what the future lies there. Are we going to be using a lot more of these portals or will they phase out once borders open up and we start traveling again? It, it's going to be an interesting interesting time i think the next five years uh, yeah look i agree with you i think that it's a i think that there's a challenge i don't think that there's a very clear answer so i think that the challenge is this our industry is based in relationships as we well know and why is it based in relationships it's based in relationships because our industry is a trust industry so building up those 
personal relationships, there's no substitute for sitting down with somebody in their store, having a cup of coffee, getting to know them, understanding what their values are about, what is their business um, objectives are, and using that as a foundation to build a business relationship. Beyond that, I think it's critically important to have the technology. You need to have a good website. You need to have good information available. It needs to be current. You need to be super fast on the service that you provide for your customers, whether it be as simple as they send you an email request for a price, you need to get back to them literally instantly mm. to uh, facilitate these things. So I think what's gonna be interesting moving forward now into the next little period is how do you combine not traveling easily and having a digital presence? So for those of us who have a presence in the marketplace or built up a presence over a number of years, I think it'll be a lot easier. You can get on the phone and you can find your clients in another city and say, I've built this application or here's my website, go and have a look at it. And I'm certainly confident that when our customers go on our website, I know that it's never a thought for them about, oh, will the quality be okay? But it's always, we know the quality is always gonna be okay. For them, sometimes it's a question of understanding the price or understanding the technology that might be involved. So if you were a new person coming into the market, I think it would be very, very difficult because you can't travel or difficult to travel, very expensive to travel. And how do you get somebody to trust you yeah. online? Yeah, you and there's so much the, choice. You took the words out of my mouth and that's exactly what yeah, I was about to too, say. Yeah. Like it's the reputation that we can survive on because we've already got those that trust built. Yeah, but the, the new people, are, it is certainly going to be a bit more challenging to, to earn that reputation. Mm. And so but, much of the relationship building does happen over a coffee or, you know, at an event or, you know, over a glass of wine at the, at the local bar. How do you do that when this is the only form of, of communication that you have and might be that way for quite a long time? So I suppose there is a, there is a kind of an interesting um, analogy in that regard about not having the face-to-face -face relationship. I mean, Blue Nile have built an incredible business without having any relationships. Mm. But what they have is a money-back guarantee. Mm. And we're going to sell you whatever we're going to sell you, good, bad, indifferent. If you like it, great, you'll keep it. If you don't like it, you'll send it back. And I understand that model, which says, um, you know, we give you the comfort that we'll take the, you know, we'll give you your money back if you don't like it. But it's like, what kind of a premise is that to build a business on? It's a different consumer too, potentially. It's, it's somebody who doesn't necessarily know what they're looking for, doesn't necessarily know what they want to buy. I'm not talking about that, that product in particular or that brand in particular, but, you know, if there's less of an involvement from the consumer, then there's a, it's a different consumer. I think, you know, you have um, your retailers and your customers, your consumers are invested in the product that you're selling. So they don't want to just buy something from a picture necessarily, unless they already know you, because it's a much more significant purchase than just a purchase for them. It is more emotional. And I think that's the difference. There's a different type of customer behind the buy. I, I, look, I think you're absolutely right. And I suppose if you think about brands like Rolex or Patek Philippe or Rolls Royce, I don't think they have a, a money back guarantee. No. <laughs> Jewelry is such a unique purchase that I can't really think of too many 
other products or industries which are which are like ours as far as buying something you really need to see it and feel it and get that emotional attachment to the piece myself like it's it, i guess it might be different buying i don't know like a gold bangle or something super basic because it's just gold but when it's when you're talking about stones you know colored gemstones and diamonds and things they're, they're all so different there's no cookie cutter like you but but i'm also biased because i'm in the industry but it's but yeah, like, like you have to see it to know what you're getting. I don't know how you can purchase from these places online because yeah, you're just missing out on the whole experience. You're very touchy-feely though too, Brett. You're a bit hands-on. I'm, I'm a big sook, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is no replacement for obviously picking something up and touching it and feeling it in the store environment. And I think that this is one of the reasons why today there is, if there is a trend in retail, what I would certainly say that trend is to create an experience and you'll see a lot of retail stores today are becoming a little bit more like stepping into somebody's lounge at home or stepping into something that's a much more private kind of feeling as opposed to into a store with rows of counters and yeah. uh, you know yeah. brands all the way down the wall kind of thing yeah, they're as opposed to this, this feeling of this feeling of privacy and a feeling of sit down, have a glass of wine, we'll make you a cup of coffee. It's special experience. Mm, mm, yeah, absolutely. Have you seen um, local jewellery retailers, especially probably the ones that you deal with the most, change their habits in regards to COVID? Obviously creating that beautiful experience for their local customers, they've probably still been able to do, but have they uh, changed any other practices due to COVID that you've seen? I think where there has been some advantage taken is that because of the no travel, no international travel, there's a lot of money that's still in the country, which, um, and I think that a lot of people have taken advantage of that by promoting one-on-one -on -one to their customers, getting on the phone and doing the hard yards on the phone and saying, look, you know, I know we're stuck at home, but we've done X, Y, and Z. And, I think that, you know, you might want to have a look at this and all of the click and collect kind of stuff. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it still boils down to those personal relationships. And I think when you look at the statistics on how many new cars have been purchased over the last little period and DIY, all these sorts of things where people are looking, you know, I can't go to see so fine, I'll spend my money, I'll buy a new car or I'll do up the house or the, there is money absolutely to be spent. And mm. so... How does the jewelry industry get its slice of that? You've just got to do the work. And doing mm. the work is about putting yourself at the forefront of those people's minds to say, yeah, maybe I should spend some money on my wife. You know, mm. the one who's doing all the home schooling and the teaching and the cooking and the cleaning and everything else all at the same time. <laughs> maybe we should show a bit of appreciation. You know, we've seen in our business as a result um, a definite upturn in more bespoke, more high-end pieces um, as a direct result of those impacts, you know, kind of COVID issues. Yeah, because mm. you do offer a custom service as well. It's not purely just off-the-shelf um, type design jewellery. So have you noticed, is that what you're referring to? You, you've had a... Yeah, very much. That type, type of work, yeah. I suppose, that, you know, our business is segmented in a variety of different ways. Um, the biggest part of our business today is the part which is all about bespoke. 
So whether it's the one-off type products that we manufacture ourselves and then sell off the shelf as a, as a one of a kind, or whether it be the collaboration that we do with clients. Some of, some of the collaborations can be a simple little thing with us send us a sketch or a drawing and say, please manufacture this for us to, right, let's do a collection for next year where we want to do 15 pieces or whatever it might be. It's got to be themed. There's a, and it can be a nine month to one year gestation period of design, development, prototyping to bring the collection together. And we, for example, we've just finished in a collection recently for one of our clients, which is an, uh, an engagement collection is 20 designs and it's their inspiration, our technology, our finish, our sourcing and providing them with an end result, which they can now launch, promote, and then give all of the after-sales service for all of the special orders. That was an 18-month project. And you know, not everybody's got 18 months when they have the patience to see a project like that through. But yeah. every, that and everything in between to, you know, after 30-odd years, we've got thousands and thousands of designs. And there's still designs that we made in year one that are selling today. We don't, you know, they're not front and center on the website. <laughs> but for some, this morning I had a client from country Victoria phone me up and say, you know, listen, that A147, I need another one. <laughs> well, things are coming back in style. Chokers are back in style. I don't know why, but they are. <laughs> if, someone's, if it's going to make somebody happy, I'm happy to make one with pleasure. <laughs> Perfect. So and, uh, you did mention earlier you're selling to New Zealand as well. Uh, so Australia, New Zealand. Do, do you find yourself selling to any other sort of Pacific nations or other parts of the, the world or is it predominantly Australia, New Zealand? So, I mean, our primary business is, you know, Australia, New Zealand. Um, we do have clients in some of the Pacific Island nations, which uh, we've had for a long time as well. Uh, and then over the years, you know, I used to have a sales guy who worked on the West Coast of America for a number of years. And we had a, an agent to work for us in Europe. And more recently, we've developed some customers in Scandinavia. Um, but some of those customers have stuck with us through the years. But a lot of those customers also were revolving around the customer relations that were developed with the salesperson at the time. And they're a little hard to maintain at this sort of distance. Mm. So yeah, primarily Australia, New Zealand, um, Fiji, Cook Islands. It's a good excuse to, you know, do some island hopping <laughs> from time to time and tack on the long weekends. Yeah, very nice. The weather's good, you make the most, why not? <laughs> what do you think's on the cards for the Australasian jewellery industry for the next 12 months, Lester? What's on the cards or what should be on the cards? Yeah, Ooh, what do you want both. to see happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think what should be on the cards is that I think that this COVID thing has been a roller coaster for a lot of retailers. Some retailers have done incredibly well and some have struggled. And that's all about demographics. It's not necessarily because there's something good or bad about your business. If you've done well, I think it's probably you've had the right demographics. And if you haven't done well, you know, if you're a shopping center jeweler, um, it's been very, very challenging. But I think that everybody should take some comf comfort in all of these challenges always pass. And things do come good. They come different, but they come good. And the question is, you know, how to position yourself, how to, 
use this cliche of pivoting into whatever the new normal is going to be. And I think that that new normal, the way I'm seeing it anyway, is that as consumers become more and more educated, self-educated through all the information that's available on the internet, there is a demand for more and more expertise. Consumers want more, and so they want more from the retailer. The re retailers need to upskill themselves, and they need to upskill themselves not just by doing all the research, but by partnering with the right kinds of suppliers. So yeah, that supplier might be for whatever the niches of their business. So I think that there is a trend to upskill, and I would be encouraging retailers to understand that trend, that the demand is being driven by consumers for more information, better information um, and expertise. That's a really good good tip. People that have their own businesses can't be in a position where they are complacent anymore about what they know. Um, you know, it's not a do your thing and then, you know, you can rest on your laurels. It, you do need to keep evolving with the consumer and you're right, they are, they are knowing more and more every time we meet them. So it's a, a very good call out to keep upskilling. Yeah, and, and things change incredibly quickly. So I think that, you know, Brett, come back to your, you, you asked me a question earlier about trends. And I know that you're talking about design trends, but I think that the, the technology trend is a more important trend because you may have the most wonderful designs, but if you don't have a method of distribution or method of getting the information out to your clients or a, a way of your clients being able to find you, it's not going to help anybody. So that's what should we should be doing. What do you think we will be doing in the next 12 months? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, think, I think we'll be fighting to educate <clears throat> the, the industry. Um, our industry, is it's a difficult industry. And I think that if you look at the succession in our industry, it's, um, it's very thin. Years and years ago, you know, 50 years ago, it was a tradition. My father was in the jewelry industry. I'm in the jewelry industry. My kids will follow me. There were dynasties. No one wants to come into the industry today. It's too difficult. It's, you know, it's capital intensive. There's so much stuff you've got to learn. And the future is very unclear about the particular path that the industry has taken, whether it be mining and diamond sourcing and diamond cutting through to manufacturing and where and how those things are all controlled. It's daunting. It's very, very daunting. Um, so I think one of the issues we have to deal with is educate. I know we're kind of harping on this thing about educating, but I think that when you look at the age, the age group of the industry, it's difficult to get older people to make these changes and to, to kind of evolve. Mm. Now, I go and I ask my son, you know, what's coming next year? He's got a better idea than I have. <laughs> yeah that's my 30 year old son not my <laughs> seven year old son <laughs> he will too soon gen alpha no. watch out <laughs> and what about uh what's on the cards for lester brand for the next 12 months uh well i think it's firstly we've got to come out of this coronavirus thing uh, let's get to the end of the year uh, we can't travel so let's definitely put a damper on a lot of things for us that I can't get to see our clients. I can talk to them on the phone and I do. So that certainly has slowed a lot of things down, which has meant that we've gone the whole digital, you know, more and more digital as we can. 
And a lot of that ends up the time, sort of time constraint for me is that we do something even as simple as doing the little rotating videos that you saw earlier today. And I'll send it to 10 different customers and say, oh, that's, that's fantastic. Good for me. So all of a sudden we end up providing graphic services. Yeah. <laughs> And I'll say, I'll do it for you with pleasure. Just give me the design so I can make it for you. And then you get all of that anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. I had a customer get very upset with me because they wanted me to just do all the graphic work for them. <laughs> and I said, no, I won't do it. She said, we'll pay you. I said, you can't pay me enough. Yeah. I said, Not my business. Let, exactly. Let me make the jewelry and you'll get the graphics for free. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, good to know you're not going to diversify too far from from where your forte is. Um, but no, um, no, no, we'll just, you know, I think um, we mentioned it earlier. I think we want to stay in our lane, do what we do well, and just try and reach more people with the same the same model. Yeah, be the master of your own niche. I guess the exactly. best way forward. Exactly. Mr. Lester Brand, it was just a pleasure to chat to you today on the Jewelers podcast. Thank you so much for having a talk with us and for sharing your history and your beautiful passion for the jewelry industry. Uh, we will chat to you again one day. Well, Laura, thank you. It's, and Brett, thank you. It's been my pleasure and um, look forward to the next one. Yeah, look forward to seeing you in person. Hopefully uh, 2022 will open that up for us. So uh, fingers crossed and look forward to it. The beer will be on you. Yeah, well, <laughs> always is. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed that. Thanks so much for tuning in. Make sure that you hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player. And feel free to follow us on all of our socials. We're on Instagram and Facebook.